0: Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation.
1: So today we have um, a special guest from the Race Affinity Group called Daphne Marchenko, and she's an interdisciplinary mixed methods researcher working at the intersection of bioethics, the social sciences, and the ethical, legal, and social implications, or ELSI, of genetics. Dr. Marshenko's scholarship investigates the ethical and social implications of genetics, genomics, and identifies policy recommendations to address these issues. In her work, she advocates for and facilitates research efforts that promote interdisciplinary collaborations and social and ethical responsibility in genetics broadly, and social and behavioral genomics specifically. So welcome Daphne, and thanks so much for coming on our podcast. Um, So just a sort of general question. Um, A lot of your work and scholarship focuses on the role and interaction of genes and the environment to influence behavior. So how did you become interested in genes and how they can determine behavior in certain social and environmental contexts?
2: Well, thank you first for having me. Um, So it's perhaps unsurprising that I advocate for interdisciplinary research collaborations given my own interdisciplinary background Um, i have a phd in education from the university of cambridge and part of my work during my doctoral dissertation was very interested in this field of social and behavioral genomics so social and behavioral genomics uh, is interested in the relationship between genetics and uh, social and behavioral outcomes. Researchers study things like intelligence or educational attainment, income, um, externalizing behavior. And I was really interested in the social and ethical implications of that work, particularly given the ugly history behind genetics, the field of human genetics. Um, And so my motivation was one, on the one hand, you know, I'm doing a PhD in education. I'm very interested in, educational disparities in the United States context, where there are stark racial and socioeconomic disparities, and uh, we have a history of conflating race with ability. And on the other, I'm interested in this area of scientific research um, and the the consequences, uh, whether intended or not, of work being done in that area. And so that led me to uh, examine the relationship between behavioral genomics research on educationally relevant behaviors and outcomes and how teachers conceptualize student ab- ability and student achievement in the u.s context text which as i mentioned has stark racial and socioeconomic disparities so um, my foray into the field of genetics was really motivated by wanting to understand and unpack some of the social and ethical consequences of genomics research done on controversial areas like intelligence or um, educational attainment or income. So why are genes in the context of behavior
1: such a challenging topic? Can you go into that a little bit
2: more maybe? Well, I think if I had the clean cut answer to that question, I would be out of a job. (laughs) Part Part of what I do is trying to unpack that controversy and understand the polarization around genomic research on human behavior. Um, But, you know, as I mentioned, there is an ugly history behind human genetics and in particular genetics have been used at various points in time to create ideologies about who is more or less able, who is more or less worthy within a society. Um, So, you know, intelligence being one of the classic examples of, um, uh, ideologies around intelligence being one of the classic examples of people making arguments to explain our social structure, the inequalities within our society as a function of genetics, um, and in particular genetic differences between racial groups in terms of their cognitive ability. So there's a really historically burdened uh, history. I mean, this, this, I should also mention, is not confined to the past. So there continue to be people in our world today who believe that there are biological differences between racial groups in terms of their uh, ability and um, uh, use that to explain the inequalities that we see in our society and not only to explain those inequalities, but to justify them and say that they're, the, the, the inequalities that we see are, are just a function of genes and that we can't do anything in, in response to that. And it is the way it is.
1: What um, most surprises you about some of the work that you've done?
2: Um, So what I found most interesting is this idea of strategic essentialism. You know, we do not practice genetic essentialism in a strategic way. Each of us have our own values, belief systems, traditions that we pull in to help us make sense of genetic information. Um, I often refer to the book Social Life of DNA by Alondra Nelson as one example of strategic essentialism. You know, in that book, she documents how members of the African American community in the United States with the advent of genetic ancestry testing, um, incorporate genetic ancestry testing into their efforts to reconnect with their stolen past as descendants of slaves, and um, illustrates in the book how when an individual has done a genealogical mapping, gone through the historical records to try and identify Know, where they're where they originated from and then also took a genetic ancestry test if the genetic ancestry test results did not correspond completely with what they had been doing through their genealogical mapping how they were able to create narratives to make it make sense um, we also see examples of strategic essentialism for instance uh, among white nationalists who use genetic ancestry testing to try and reinforce their notions of white racial superiority. Um, And again, if they receive genetic ancestry testing, test results that don't correspond with their beliefs about their origins and and who they are and their superiority, again, how they are able to create narratives to help make it make sense. So I've been I'm I'm very interested in the ways in which we are strategic essentialists um, as we think about genetic information and um, try and make it make sense in relation to our pre-existing values belief systems and traditions
3: Uh, to back up uh, a little bit regarding uh, strategic essentialism regarding genetics uh, i'm I'm interested in what are your thoughts on these genetic services having tests for um, consumers to assess things like uh, disease risk uh, disease risk assessments uh, of course as you spoke before ancestry um, also, I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on genetic privacy. Um, so these are the three uh, dynamics that, um, in your particular uh, answer to uh, my colleague, Amelia, um, in your response, these are three things that um, often come up in conversations like this. So um, what are your thoughts on, on those three dynamics of uh, genetics and genetic services?
2: Yeah, I'm so glad that you bring that up because I think, you know, we're really seeing how industry is responding to genomic technologies um, and trying to provide services to consumers uh, in many instances, despite the fact that those services are being prematurely applied. So, you know, one um, classic example that's receiving a lot of attention nowadays is polygenic embryo selection, that there are for-profit direct to consumer companies that are trying to introduce polygenic scores into in vitro fertilization, um, services for families. And, you know, there've been a number of papers that have come out in the last year or so demonstrating the limited utility of trying to, um, use polygenic embryo selection. Um, and I, uh, I, I mentioned this just because I think one of the big, um, responsibilities for us as scientific researchers is to be aware of how industry are applying our our findings and be um, very mindful of that, Um, but not only be mindful of it, but work towards trying to implement policy regulations that might prevent um, these premature and inappropriate applications of genomic technologies. Another thing that I think is worth uh, mentioning here that's of interest is some of the scholarship trying to assess the psychosocial impacts of receiving a uh, direct-to-consumer genetic test result. So there are companies today where individuals can go right now and try and uh, and receive uh, genetic test results or their purported genetic test results for things like educational attainment or intelligence. Um, There are, of course, more superfluous ones like aversion to cilantro or whether or not your earlobe uh, is attached. But, you know, there is literature looking at the potentially negative psychosocial impacts of receiving a polygenic score for something like educational attainment and how that might affect your sense of self-esteem or confidence. Um, so, you know, there are both the, the um, industry applications of genomic technologies and also how those might be received by members of, of the public, especially given, as I've said, our tendency to think of genes in immutable or deterministic ways, um, even as we practice strategic essentialism.
3: Interesting. Um, my follow-up question to that, because um, obviously you're talking about genetic ideologies and obviously it's, it's eugenics. And eugenics um, obviously is, is connected to the Holocaust, and as we are continuing to understand our history, that they got that from us, right? They got that from the historical precedents of the scientific and medical community in America, and and a lot of these particular um, things that we said, oh, you know, that's horrible, and you know, that was old school thinking, as you stated previously, is still current, um, unfortunately, especially with the um, understandings of genetic technologies. And for example, we all have heard about designer babies, but I'm interested to see what is your thought about superhumans, right? Is there a thin line between genetic technologies for treatment versus enhancement? What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, that's a really big question. Um, you know, so I, I guess I would say a couple of things. The first is that uh, our scientific research does not operate in a vacuum. And I think it's unfortunate that um, at some point in the, the process of us deciding, you know, what the scientific method is, what the scientific process is, how we train people to become scientific researchers, that we've decided that it is appropriate to strip the context, to divorce the person who becomes the scientist from their lived experiences that may have led them to become a scientist in the first place. And uh, I mention that because I think in order for us to really respond to um, uses and applications of genetic technologies and and, uh, other scientific advancements, um, we need to be aware of the fact that all of us as members of the research enterprise carry with us lived experiences and histories that are motivating the work that we do and that the work that and and that the work we do um is not uh, something that has come to be in, in this vacuum divorced from the historical the social the economic and the political context so um all of that i think is to say that when we talk about this idea of enhancement it can be a very polarizing question, and we need to understand that even if we think we are talking about or answering the same question, there are different groups of people, different orientations that, that may be approaching that question not only in a different way, but ask, actually asking a different question, um, even, even if uh, it seems that we're all on the same page um, in what we're discussing. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if I can offer you a direct answer to this question of, um, of enhancement moving towards, you know, super human. I think that that's a very long standing question within the field of bioethics. And, and people have, um, you know, different orientations around what they think it means to be an authentic human being in the first place. Um, what I do think is that we need to do a better job of bringing empathy into the scientific process and part of bringing empathy into the scientific process means us being aware of our own positionality and our own um, lived experiences that may be influencing how we respond to certain questions.
1: I suppose, kind of building off that, you've you've mentioned that people approach questions differently. They have different questions. They have different values. So how they interpret what the implications of what they're doing are, um, you know, vary widely depending on the field and the person as well and their lived experience. So um, I read your paper about adversarial collaboration um, and how this is a good solution for trying to bring people together that have different views. Come from different scientific backgrounds, use different methodologies, etc. So, can you describe your experience as being involved with this, um, and tell us how it can help for people to sort of collect around these issues and try and move move forward with policies and, um, you know, preventing harm.
2: So when I first started work became interested in the field of social and behavioral genomics, I was a bit disheartened to see all the polarization that occurs around, um, you know, whether we should or should not do this work, research in this area, how we should or should not do research in this area. And it's not because the polarization existed in the first place, but it was more so because I felt that we were talking past rather than with each other. And the consequence or a potential consequence of, of not being in dialogue with each other is, uh, you know as we've spoken about earlier, industry applications of genomic technologies that may be premature or inappropriate. And um, so I became really interested in trying to think through how can we celebrate the disagreements that we have um, within the research enterprise about something as controversial as social and behavioral genomics. Um, The thinking there being, you know, if we are unwilling to come together with those that we disagree with and really try and understand the nature of those disagreements and mapping those disagreements and the different trade-offs that we might each make in answering a research question, that we weren't going to be able to genuinely respond to inappropriate uses of the research uh, being produced. So that has been some of the motivation leading me to work in collaboration with others to think about different frameworks for celebrating disagreement. Adversarial collaboration is one potential framework for celebrating disagreement. It originally emerged in behavioral economics. Daniel Kahneman, who is a Nobel laureate, is considered to be um, the the person to coin the term adversarial collaboration, but uh, originally it was meant as a way to resolve uh, disputes between researchers who um, had a dispute around an empirical question. Uh, So in the classic adversarial collaborative model, you might have two parties who have a disagreement over an empirical question, who instead of resorting to the traditional critique, reply, rejoiner format would come together to embark on a joint research effort. Um, one, uh, one important facet of that was that it, each member of the adversarial collaborative model would propose an empirical test for Um, supporting the hypothesis that they had around whatever the issue is at hand. Uh, And then the the parties would come together to try and think through and devise a third empirical test uh, that that would um, potentially resolve the dispute at hand or, or at least provide some insights into the nature of the debate. But the idea behind adversarial collaboration is to make controversies more productive and more generative and to bring parties together into a single space to really talk through their disagreements, to understand and map the contours of those disagreements, and to identify and flesh out into public view the trade-offs that different researchers make um, when when grappling with a particular research question. Um, I have been interested in seeing whether there might be elements of the adversarial collaborative model that is applied in the social sciences Whether there might be elements that we could adapt to grappling with questions that are empirical and also uh, ethical in nature. So, you know, questions like do genes matter for social inequality? Are genes changing our understandings of race? These are very polarizing questions. um, And I think also really uh, um, important questions for us to try and understand the different orientations around it. if we if we want to be able to productively respond to, you know, racial essentialism, uh, people's tendency to think of race, uh, or or the belief that some people hold that race is a biological category that divides people into discrete groups, um, and so I've been uh, I've been part of some adversarial collaborative efforts to really try and and understand um, some of the controversies and and hearts of disagreements around questions that are concerned with social and behavioral genomics specifically. Um, But uh, I believe, you know, more than assigning a single uh, label to what it is that I'm trying to advocate for, I think the piece that you reference in human genetics and genomic advances is really making the case that we need to do a better job of Celebrating the disagreements that we have, and to take the pressure to achieve consensus off the table, um, because consensus may prevent us from coming into dialogue with each other. If we feel that we're going to have to compromise our views or positions in some way, um, an adversarial collaboration is really about trying to capture and understand what those views and positions are. I think this is going to be something that's very familiar to those who are in bioethics. I don't think that you know, what I'm proposing is something radically novel from the perspective of trying to um, understand what the different orientations are uh, towards a a particular issue. Um, But I do think that um, we need to be a bit more uh, intentional about thinking through why and how to bring together those who hold disagreements within our field.
1: Great. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it sounds fascinating and a good way to move forward with some of these issues. Another approach that you've written about is kind of um, trying to make information more available to the public so they can understand um, genomics results. Um, so you've been involved also in developing a sort of repository of frequently asked questions for people to make sense of some of the findings if they've had GWAS studies done. Um, Can you speak a little bit more about that and the importance, again, of educating the public
2: um, on on these issues? So in 2013, the SSGAC, or Social Sciences Genetic Association Consortium, which is an interdisciplinary group of researchers interested in trying to integrate genomic data into the social sciences, uh, issued the first genome-wide association study on educational attainment. And accompanying that genome-wide association study was a frequently asked questions document. The motivation behind that FAQ document being the desire to try and prevent the misinterpretation or misapplication of Um, of that genome-wide association study on educational attainment. Um, Since that first FAQ document in 2013, we have seen a rise in the number of of frequently asked question documents that accompany genome-wide association studies on human behavior. And alongside my colleagues, Lucas Matthews, who's at Columbia University and the Hastings Center, Sam Trejo, who's at Princeton University, and Ben Doming, who's at Stanford University, um, we decided to collate all of these FAQs into a single location, which is graciously hosted by the Hastings Center, a bioethics institute in Garrison, New York. Um, previously, previous to, these, to this repository, which we've named FAQs on um, Human Genetic Studies, or FOGS, the faq documents existed in really disparate locations so either on consortia websites or people would post them on their individual blogs and in very rare instances you would see them as appendices to published manuscripts Uh, but this is really a disservice to the researchers who are putting in the time and effort to create these documents and i want to note that these documents are being created without there being much Incentive from the research enterprise to do so. It's not um, a document that is, you know, considered an official publication that's going to count towards your tenure portfolio or or anything like that. But uh, um, uh, researchers were feeling that it was important enough that the that they counteract or. Pro- be proactive about potentially counteracting misapplications or misinterpretations of their genome-wide association studies. And so it was a disservice to the researchers who were putting in the time and effort to create these documents and a disservice to uh, what we thought uh, to be the the many audiences who might stand to benefit from being able to access these documents. And so that was the impetus for the creation of FOGS, this public repository. Um, What we've tried to do in FOGS is not only to link to the FAQ documents themselves, but also to provide a brief summary of what it is that researchers uh, did in their studies and and talked about in their frequently asked documents. Uh, The creation of this repository is just one really small step in what I think needs to be done when it comes to public engagement. Um, As we've talked about already, there are a number of industry applications of genomic technologies Things are more accessible to people than ever before. Um, direct-to-consumer genetic te- technologies are changing how we think about ourselves, how we think about others. Um, and so it is, I believe, part of our responsibilities as researchers to think through how our work might be interpreted or um, understood and applied by members of the public. So. Uh, we can think that the research we produce is done in a vacuum and that it is not our responsibility to think about how our work might de- be disseminated or used once we publish our journal article i really disagree with that belief i think that we're not going to be able to uh, effectively you know fight disease or create research studies that are respectful of community values if we continue to do work operating in in this value in this vacuum um, and so i think stakeholder engagement public engagement are really critical for expanding how we think about the work that we do and also how we think about the potential risks and potential benefits of the work that we do as well so um, You know, I think public engagement, stakeholder engagement is actually a critical component to us being able to do rigorous scientific research. Uh,
3: What do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of using mRNA technology? And as you know, there's so many different um, theories and propaganda and many other um, um, thoughts about this uh, particular technology. Uh, so, yeah, what are your thoughts on on that?
2: I mean, that's a great question. I'm not sure that I feel qualified to be able to answer it. I, I guess what I could say is, um, you know, I think that what we're seeing in the United States context is a boiling point in terms of the crisis of faith in science. And, you know, uh, COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy it may be just one example of the threats that are posed by this. crisis um, crisis of faith in science. I think as researchers, um, rather than sitting by or finding fault in others, we have to respond uh, by bringing empathy into our scientific process. You know, it is our responsibility to innovate uh, in support of the flourishing of the full human population. Um, We haven't always delivered on that promise uh, to support the full flourishing of the human population. And I think we need to be um, more aware than ever. And I know that I I have kept saying this and I will keep saying this, but I think we have to be more aware than ever of how our own lived experiences relate to the work that we do. And I think we can use that as an asset rather than a disadvantage um, because it will enable us to, connect with others um, in a way that is more personable. Um, you know, as uh, kind of one example, I know that there's research demonstrating that individuals are most receptive to receiving information from scientists who one once shared similar perspectives to them. So I think really it is um, an asset for us to be able to leverage the power of story- storytelling and our own personal experiences and how we communicate and and connect to others. So, you know, I, I kind of took us on a little bridge somewhere else, but I don't think I, I don't know if I'm qualified to be able to speak about our mRNA uh, specifically. But I do think what is relevant is, um, again, recognizing that um, we are at a, a point where there's a real crisis of faith in science, and we have to take a different approach to the scientific process in response to it um, in in everything that we do. You know, the whole enterprise of scientific research involves iteration and learning from past experiments and, and making adaptations. And I think we need to take the same kind of approach to how we think about the scientific
0: process.
1: Uh, I suppose just to kind of round things out, are you feeling optimistic then about you know, the human race's ability to manage new genomics findings and balance that with, um, you know, the harmful effects of that?
2: Yeah, it's a big existential question. (laughs) I mean, I think that we are really good at being very creative and, um, and that creativity may transform to premature applications in industry as people are trying to make a profit, but it also can translate to how we respond to those premature applications and uses. And so I am optimistic in the sense that um, we have a lot of ingenuity about us, a lot of creativity in how we can respond to things. And I think that there are a lot of really amazing people out there who are taking the, their, the job of um, ensuring social and ethical responsibility in research in genomics and in scientific research broadly very seriously. Uh, and it is really humbling for me as an early career scholar to see so many people paving, paving the way for that work.
3: So uh, uh, Daphne, is genetics destiny? And how do epigenetics shape individual and communal health outcomes, um, and as well as research outcomes, uh, as, of course, epigenetics is a very uh, fluid type of, uh, of study?
2: So I think the first part of your question is maybe the easiest one that you've asked me all day. Genetics are <laughs> not destiny. <laughs>
3: all right, cool.
2: So, yeah, genetics are not destiny. Um, I think what we have to be really mindful of though, are the ideologies and narratives that are created around genetics to say that it is destiny, um, because those narratives uh, not only may distract from our efforts to respond to things like, for example, structural inequality and structural racism, um, but they may actually exacerbate those kinds of things. And so I think it's really um, uh, important for us to recognize um, not only that genes aren't destiny, but that there are narratives out there that say that genes are destiny, which have real impacts and consequences for how we think about ourselves, how we think about others, um, and how we respond to the inequalities and injustices that are within, their, within our society. Um, for the, the point about epigenetics, You know, I'm not an expert in epigenetics, so I I won't be able to answer the question probably in the way that you uh, want to. But one thing I will say is that in, I believe it was 2016, Dorothy Roberts gave a Tanner Lecture Series talk on the new Biosocial Sciences. And she spoke a little bit about epigenetics uh, in that talk. And I think one thing that she said that really resonates with me is, on the one hand, it may be very powerful for us to be able to show the physiological impacts of experiencing something like racism. Um, on the other hand, we have to be very mindful not to try and solve the problem by turning to back on the individual and trying to you know, develop a drug or, um, or, or some sort of reaction to the physiological processes. Um, Instead, we need to be looking to the structure that generated that physiological response in the first place. Um, And so, you know, as much as something, uh, an area like epigenetics might be helpful in in showing, um, you know, the real impact of the environment on someone's health and well-being, we also need to make sure that we're focused on trying to reform and respond to that environment rather than, trying to find solutions that are at the individual level, um, because that will will take away the accountability that we have to respond to something like structural inequality.
0: Thank you for listening to another great conversation on bioethics in the margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas and we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jung and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.